0: So right now we're going to be, in our teaching, picking up in 2 Samuel, we'll be moving from where we left off, and uh, I'll give you that point of reference. The notes that you have in the bulletin suffice, so I'm not going to go over those with you right now, but we're actually going to pick it up from chapter 15 at the really the closing remark that I made in verse 12. That's going to be our pickup. I left off concluding chapter, or 15, concluding verse 12. We're going to pick it up there. There'll be an addendum to that as well, pertinent, as I was asking the Lord, where do I start? And so generally, well, I start where I finished, but now I'm going to just tag this, because there's a word that I do want you to see in this that's very contemporary. In other words, it's, it's happening right now. It has been a part of, if you would, the voicing of those who have found themselves offended or who have find themselves in need of defending their position. And it's really important to understand that in our life and our spiritual journey, we can both be offended and we can find ourselves in defense There are times in which we stand up in being offended and most in particular, I believe it's a time for the church to be a body that stands up in the offense that it can take from a culture that has rejected the laws of God and the love of the Lord. So continuing also perhaps in a title that I used last week but I think a little bit more refined When Reverence Ceases, that'll be the day's title. Jonathan always comes after me for a title, so that's going to be the title. But it continues on in theme. Let me share it. When reverence ceases, indifference increases, and pride it appeases. We're told in the epistle that was written to the church by John that the things that relate to mankind... That never change, and that in fact are the areas that we find ourselves most vulnerable to, that Satan exploits and imposes, are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So there's nothing new. In fact, that's, in essence when we read Ecclesiastes, what we find to be true about Solomon's assessment. The only thing there is that Solomon drifted off of a focus steadfast on the Lord, a heart that began to become hardened because of his spiritual non-pursuit. He just kind of stopped at a time in which should have been the apex of great advances to the kingdom. He just stopped because he decided that he would explore the regions and the influences of culture that basically he had sovereignty over god had given him sovereignty over the influence of culture and rather than rally them to the pinnacle of spiritual excellence he said to himself i'm just going to check out the things that are vain check out the things that make man happy I'm going to do it all, and I'll have an answer for you later. But the later really never came without the consequence that was ushered in because of it. Though we're not, per se, talking about Solomon, we are talking about a time in which his father, a great king, notably so, because his heart followed after God, why didn't it transfer to his son Solomon? whom God, even in foreseeing and speaking of at the birth, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jedidiah, basically the one that God loves. David, a heart that followed after God, God's eyes was on Jedidiah, Solomon. So we look in today's scripture, though, at a father who is a king, as well as a shepherd, who's going through a crucible of testing and great disappointment, grievance. He knew it was coming. He just didn't realize by what measure it would be enacted. It's really not too different from us. We know something's coming. It's going to be a hardship. We kind of have ideas of how it's going to come, but not really at all in a predictable fashion in which we're truly ready. It just comes. There it is. It can be personal. Most of us dread that most often than we do of the things that are more distant from us. Tragedies and consequences that are more distant from us are easier to take than those which personally assault us. But both will happen. You couple that with what may be indeed the assault on government and then you mix that all up into what we know for certain is upon the church and it leaves you in trepidation unless you're choosing to follow the king. David will be leaving Jerusalem weeping as he goes for the events that are current in his time in which treachery has been raised up in his own house. And he, having the government and having the heart of God, is now disposed to let it go as he goes from the place of authority to the place of submission for the purpose of transacting the will of God in great difficulty. You see, sometimes... Resignation is required, and the only thing that we can say in it is this, God will let me know when this is all over what his position and heart is for me. We'll see that in the text today. So moving back, just a verse before we plow through the other verses, it says this, Absalom sent... And this would be for Ahithophel, the Gileonite. We looked at that last week. David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. This is the emphasis for today. And the conspiracy grew strong. For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. That's a popular word. It's interesting, this very verse that as I was reviewing it had been last night and this morning was confirmed with another passage of scripture that was given to me by a brother who had been in the word and said, check this out. And I actually had been checking it out, but it was wonderful to be able to have a confirmation of it. And so what I'm going to direct your eyes to, and I believe that I marked it, but I'm going to be confident that I did, Isaiah chapter 8, if you'd turn there, verses 11 through 18, chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, see how this correlates? Just see how awesome you know the Spirit is just resonating, the voice of our culture right now, that He hears in the hearts of men, fists up in the air, denials, offense, defense. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying. Should not walk in the way of this people, saying. Verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. I want to make sure you understand there's nothing wrong with the word conspiracy unless it's being used as an excuse against transparency. And you can review the tape because I don't think I can requote that. When the word conspiracy is being used, it's an authentic word, it has deep meaning, but when it's used to avoid by those who find themselves in defense for a great offense and it is against God, even though he is not being acknowledged and it is against the citizenry, even though they don't care. This prophet is being told about that word being misused because transparency is what God wants from the heart of his people and of his leadership. Oh, we hear it, but we really never get down to the authentication of sincerity and what it means to look at things as God sees them, not as man desires to veil it. The politics of our day to God in what is offensive, by the way, God is highly offensive to man today, God takes exception with. And the reason that we have a contrast with David is because his heart really was transparent. He knew he couldn't hide from God, though he tried. He always found God to find him out. And we're not talking about the little things. We're talking about, in David's life, deep things that really were transgressions against God, and had great ramifications of consequence to God's people. So we have to be careful there. I came in my spiritual life from which anything and everything that dealt with liberty was a sin and came down to even the polishing of your shoes. So when we talk about David's life and the emphasis of things that related to how God dealt with him, they really were severe. But the reason that the Lord was so kind and generous to David, even though he inherited strong consequences because David was always authentically, sincerely of a contrite heart. When his bones were breaking, he knew exactly the reason for it. When people were hurting, he knew that in the authority that he had, if he could change that, if he could put himself in their spot to remove the, the consequence, the tragedy that indeed would befall them because of sin, paying back the individual, he would put himself in that place. He had a heart to do that. But I think that this is really timely to look at with regard to the emphasis of the conspirators, the conspiracy, Absalom is a conspirator. He ensnares the innocence of people that at one time in the citizenry of under David felt protected and safe. And Absalom's uprising is a picture of our culture's uprising that says, look at me. Look at you guys, look at me. How cool we are. Every generation moves through that, by the way. The 60s had it, the 50s had it, the 40s had it. If you go back and track culture, every cultural period had a generation that says, look at me. The problem is it's getting worse And what's making it worse is as people are saying, look at me, they're saying, don't look at God. Don't be for God. Don't get so legal with godliness. Let's get liberal with humanness. Let's coexist. And God says, I don't do it that way. I designed you for fellowship with me. It's a part of my design. You move away from me. You move then to what is not good for you. And it will change you. It will infect you. It will affect you. The conspiracy. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. When reverence ceases, indifference increases and pride it appeases. I did take poetic liberty, that's what I do. But in the definition or the reacquaintance of what indifference means, it can be cited as simply this, there's no interest any longer, and what at one time was wholesome and good and godly. There is no longer concern about how things are going and there's no sympathy to what is happening in the lives of people going the way of the earth, going the way of Satan. Just to remind you, hallow him. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. He will be as a sanctuary. And so one of the things here is the special word which we find is the sanctuary. It's really why we're here. Though when I leave on a Sunday, I am completely exhausted. I will also tell you I am completely restored. I don't confuse the two. I know why I'm exhausted. It's a spiritual endeavor, in particular that I do. It's not heavy for me, it's draining. And I have nothing to complain about because I sat under a pastor that taught seven sessions in one Sunday 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and closed in a 7 o'clock service. I'm a lightweight compared to that guy. I mean, really. It's like, Give me my little bottle and a blankie. And... But I say that because the sanctuary is a special place, and I know that he was able to make it in that context because God was special to him in that place. And by the way, I'm referring to John Corson, whose son you have been able to meet on wonderful occasions here at this place, Ben. Ben. Never let the special imagery of the sanctuary be stolen from your heart. Never. Some come in here and say, not much. I think it's everything. I really do. I've been in a lot of tents in my pastoring. And so when there has been a place that houses people so comfortably, it's warm, isn't it? A bald guy can tell when it's not too warm because all the heat just shoots out of her. It's warm in here. God does that for you guys. The sanctuary, a very special place. But let me almost just finish up here because we were to try and get to 18. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Lord Himself will be as a sanctuary but he will be a rock of offense. That's why the culture is throwing rocks because the Lord has offended them on the expectation of righteousness, of holiness, of reverence. Don't get in the way of culture. Don't get in the way of the look at me generation that has found itself embedded in every generation. To both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And this is where we're at. There are people that are throwing stones at the things of God, despising him and his sanctuary and his people and his law. And they think they're getting away with it by the breaking down of a system. Of their spiritual lives but actually it says in those people they will be the ones that find themselves broken snared and taken taken captive taken captive by the enemy whenever you see captivity that's imposed upon the children of Israel it means that that's a consequence of sin their life isn't getting better it's getting worse they're not being liberated they're being put in bondage that's what it means that's the picture There's nothing about it that a person would say, wow, weren't those great times when I went into bondage? I threw a rock at God's window. It broke. It was exciting, thrilling, people cheering me on. And now I'm in bondage. Everything that I could have ever dreamed of in that action of lawlessness and rebellion. In my Absalom moment, who could have thought that such glory would have waited me? But it's actually gory. That will await Absalom. And it's gory. What is awaiting a culture. That moves away. From the tenets. Of true faith. In God. God alone. Not coexisting faiths. That are fable. That are fiction. That will not save. But God. And God alone. And so. Many among them shall stumble, they shall fall, be broken, be snared, be taken, bind up the testimony, seal law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Even when it seems like you cannot see the face of God hiding right now, if you would, as exposure of evil is becoming more pronounced, the word of the Lord is it. I am going to call upon the Lord. Though I cannot see him in this situation, though everything seems to be in flames, everything seems to be coming after me, and that is true if you are of faith. The writer says, I'm going to call upon God in this moment. I'm not going to call God out for not being present. He's just hiding his face for a moment. But I have a relationship with him in Jesus. I will call upon him that he might make known to me this day what I shall do, what I shall say, how I am to pray. So I like that, the parallel of a conspiracy. So we return and find out how this proceeds because it is now a procession that David must lead and he does so away from the city that is very special to him. His pilgrimage is forced, but it's done in reverence because he wants no harm to come to the city of God. So he abdicates, basically saying, I am king, but I abdicate my throne. That what is happening to me will not lend itself to a consequence to the innocent. The innocents, the innocent people have been taken away by my son, a conspirator. He's taken away my counselors. 200 at least have left. The scriptures declare that they were innocent. It's not an excuse. It's just saying that's what they were. They didn't know what they were getting into. God would say, I want you to know what you're getting into. Be informed. Be in the word. Be cognizant of the culture. It doesn't mean you grab your pitchfork. We've talked about that. It doesn't mean necessarily that you become a commentator because we have... The commentary here. It means you're wise, you're shrewd. Your innocence is to be from evil, but your shrewdness is to be by what God gives you in His Word, how you handle the Word, and how you pick up people who have been broken and in bondage and taken away from God. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. A messenger came to the pastors of many churches saying, the hearts of the men of this nation are with that guy that's filled with pride, that government that imposes the things of pride and the lawlessness upon us. Could render that contemporarily. And so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Verse 14, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David had power. He had authority. He had, I believe, allies that he could have called upon but he's making nothing much of his position or his situation. He is trying to make much of God even to what would be the peril of his years. He's not trying to bring the fight into God's house. Rather, he's protecting God's house and willing to meet the enemy if necessary on feet, and somewhere where God would ordain it, away from the city. And so sometimes we need to know where to take the fight. David was always making inquiry, where do you want me to fight? On Thursday, that's what we looked at. In a text of scripture in which David coming upon Jerusalem, having taken it for God, immediately was withstood by the Philistines who heard about him and they wanted to take him out because he'd been so effective by God's power. They still held a grudge against him for taking Goliath out, their champion. All of those years of running from Saul, he had made alliances with people and he also feigned alliance with the Philistines. He was a very gifted statistician and military man because he took his orders from God. And so on Thursday, we looked at the fact that he never took for granted, though, that he always needed to make inquiry of the Lord. So David right now is making sure that the battle does not come into the city of God. Rather, In the resignation of his position, he's willing to say, I will go to battle as it is that I am fleeing. You can flee and still go to battle. It doesn't mean retreating. Though he's going opposite the direction that he knows Absalom will be coming from Hebron, he's doing so to take a position of neutrality in which the Lord may indeed give him instructions on how he is to proceed. In exiting. See, there's always a way to proceed when you exit, but if you exit without checking with God on how to proceed, you've simply taken yourself in another direction, which doesn't bring you closer to God, nor does it clearly give you an opportunity to know what God really wants to do. We don't flee in fear, we fear God and we trust in faith that He will make our way clear. Period. And so David right now in doing this and assessing that this is something that I must do, that we are not overtaken by this arrogant son of mine, this one who has blood on his hands and who indeed will commit the travesty of murder upon the innocent. I'm going to do something different. By the way, The travesty of the murder of the innocent. That's important to God, just a statistic, but it is important. That where government emphasizes emphasizes one thing that seems to be the major world travesty, which is a pandemic, I'm finally appreciating that there was a clear stat given since 1973. I've given you stats before, but this was so clear. It was a headline. Since 1973, Roe versus Wade, 63 million babies aborted in the United States of America, 63 million just in the United States of America, divided by 48 years of that law, unfortunately being passed, has led to, if you average it out about, I'm going to round it up, 1 million 300,000 babies per year for 48 years. The culture says, no more pandemic. We're in a crisis. I don't doubt that we have a health crisis, but we have a murderous health crisis in the acknowledgement, and especially in this administration presently, that is anchoring Roe versus Wade as the right of Planned Parenthood and of health care for women and it's wrong. It is wrong. It is ungodly. It is actually lawless. It is sinister and it just needs to be voiced. I appreciated that it made headlines in this year, 62 million just in the United States, but we all of a sudden start wiping our brow and shaking in our boots. When it is emphasized that 400,000 in the United States, we don't even know necessarily secondary or third kinds of conditions, pre-existing conditions, were responsible. We're working really hard to get a vaccine in people's arms, and now it's even being attributed as causing a demise. It's suggested that I believe it's Hank Aaron that just passed away. Am I right on that? He got a I'm not not trying to create a vaccine situation. I'm just saying we get things wrong about what it is that we need to do that's right. And what's right is that we stop lying about justifying one thing by the government while altogether we we deny the word of truth concerning God's laws. But I simply wanted to say that because It's important with regard to what David's even experiencing right now. And so the overtaking right now, he's concerned about, but it's that none of the innocent would find themselves in peril because of carelessness on his part, a misjudgment. The king's servant said to the king, We are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And I like this, because remember, David's a picture of a great king. And this is where we also ought to say that verse sounds like it should be what the church should be saying. And it's actually a verse that sounds like what the medical community should be saying. And it actually seems like a verse that the government ought to have inscribed over the Supreme Court, over the Capitol, over the White House, the threshold. Ought to be a banner that's just pounded into the lawn. We are your servants ready to do whatever my Lord, the King commands. And when that becomes the anthem of a compression of generations that right now are living out their life, we know that with certainty God can say, I can use that heart that's been changed And I therefore bring about revival so that none are left behind. I didn't say how many it would take for God to say, now I shall do what it is. The implication is, I will turn the hearts of many towards me. What if God said, in this church you do that, I will turn the hearts of many towards me. Revival breaks out. What's happening? There's a plague breaking out. No, it's revival in spite of the plague. God's breaking out in spite of the plague that it is concerned about. Why? Because reverence is being shown before the face of humanity. The fear of God is being invoked, not fearing him, but revering him, that indifference might be changed to deference. Deference means that you are giving in, giving over. You're stepping back. You're showing honor to one worthy of honor. Giving glory to one worthy of glory. It means you might have a point, but you're not going to make it you'll listen to one who has the greater perspective. That's God. Always God. Whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. So we pull back into the humanity of David. concupence would be the inordinate Overzealous, if you would, fleshly lust of a culture that says it's found in relationships. God is very honest with what he allows us to know. David had many wives, and it appears he had 10 concubines. and in an essence, they were the women of his day. The pornea of his time. It wasn't right. Didn't help David out. They're being left behind to tend the house. And that's actually an appropriate place right now for them to be as opposed to moving with David right now. At times, that's what the Lord would say leave that behind. That's going to hinder you from the journey that you're on and trusting me. There are things that need to be left behind. In this case, that is what David will do. His wives will come, his children will come. The picture here of the other women in his life are left behind. And so that's actually a good call for our times today. The other women must be left behind. God knows that men, women, were vulnerable to the lusts of our flesh, to what our eyes see, to what it is that we have at times the heartache for, satisfaction, companionship, intimacy, but it doesn't come by the multiplication of what it is the lust of your flesh drives you to do. It never leads to anything better. It leads to only things that are worse, And so David leaves them behind and God would say, leave whatever it is that indwells, compels your heart to be enamored, to be expended for the sake of something that will pass so quickly that like Solomon, you'll age well before your time. And rather than like wine and good cheese, You'll be moldy and you'll be drunk with confusion because you took your eyes off of me to find satisfaction in what wasn't of me. Leaves it behind. He moves out. As the king with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts, he pauses. He hasn't made it far because we know geographically where he's at right now. He pauses. He's in deep sentiment. There's grief that's overwhelming him because of what he must do. And so in the pause, may I say, that's a good thing to do. If there's grief... If there is sympathy and sadness in your life, the pause isn't wrong. It's not wrong before you take your next step to pause reflectively on what God has allowed, but what God also reveals as you take the next step. The pause is a good pause. I believe that the pause always represents something both in poetry and song that says think about that. Like when we were singing our songs, you just go, oh my goodness. The pauses to reflect on that refrain, on that chorus. I mean, my thoughts are, as I was pretty tuned in to what you guys are feeling, I would be very surprised if somebody came up to me and said, that's that set stunk. I wasn't in the presence of God at all. I would be so surprised and I'd probably then force you to sit and listen to the set one more time, and I'd sit by you with the lyric sheet open, and I'd be singing in your ear. But there were times in which, as it resonated, I couldn't do anything but tap my feet and close my eyes, lift my hands, or well, my hand. I'm a kind of one-hander lifter. Maybe the Lord would say in this time in your life with what is evident to us all, pause and look back. Refrain from being so in a hurry you forget that there's hope just ahead. Then all his servants passed before him as he pauses in a refrain Everyone moves forward and that's a good sign. Here's what, here's what is happening right now, okay? As he's pausing to reflect, basically a procession is moving forward. In other words, God is saying to him, I got your back. Your people are still with you. They're actually passing honorably before you. They passed before him all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites. Six hundred men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. In essence, these men would have been one time enemies of God. And now they have an alliance with David. At a time when David entered into Gath, there's a couple of implications here. The Gath was at one time a place where he hid out. That would have been Goliath's hometown. And David went there and feigned insanity to get out because he couldn't hide from the reputation that he was noted for being a lover of God. But then he also took over that as a place of refuge for a season. And the implication here is that these guys saw the integrity of David. They loved him. His influence in that culture was so irrefutable, it left them with no reasonable choice but to leave that place of paganism, that place of lawlessness, of evil, to follow David to the place in which his residency would bring them into the proximity of a God that would welcome them. So David's actually being encouraged right now here in the procession. Do you ever see the procession? In your problems, do you see that the pause that you take allows God to give you the procession of promises? I never saw that before. Who would have thought? Where, did they, where has that come from? God says you stood in pause long enough to see that I followed you. I'm going before you. In military language, in the priestly order, this would have been hugely encouraging. If he's leading in advance, he can't see who's behind. He pauses, and everybody just passes before him. And they're nodding. Maybe a few are patting him on the back. Maybe they're saying, good job, keep it up, David, we're with you. We're with you. So important. They passed before the king. And then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return. He notices somebody in the procession. (laughs) We'll find out a little bit more about him. But he went, hey, you just joined up yesterday. Why are you going with us now? You are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. This is David caring about somebody that he sees as a newcomer right now. And the reason that that's important is because there are newcomers that come into the kingdom. And at times they want to do more than what their experience has prepared them for. And so shepherding means that you turn them back to where they are best going to be able to mature and serve better than in the immediacy of, if you would, the procession. And this is what's happening right now. He's, He's simply saying, mercy and truth be with you. But Itaiel answered the king and said, "As the Lord lives and as my and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also, your servant shall be." So David said to Itaiel, "Go and cross over." Then Itaiel the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. It appears that that statement convinced David that there was a maturity that lended itself to permitting him to advance. And that's why at times we ought not be disappointed in what God is ultimately waiting for, which is this Do your words match up right now with your footsteps? Do your footsteps match up with your words? And if so, God says, advance, I see it. We're gonna close here because I think there's been much that has been said in principles. Never as far as I want to go, but I think sufficient as far as we need to go. But maybe something too that came as an observation You know, we have a lot of wonderful worship leaders here, and I'm privileged to be with them. But in particular, as Stephen was singing, I think you know, he reaches octaves. He moves from a low range to a high range, does so very giftedly. And as I was studying that myself as a singer, I realized that at times I can't make it to his high range. I actually can reach a range that's higher than his, but it comes in particular areas. My range is called falsetto. He simply reached an octave above where he started us in some songs. Very effective. For me, you wonder whether you're singing with Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons of the Beach Boys. And I will hurt you if you try to get to that note. But it reminded me that at times in our faith, we try to take the next we try to take the next octave up. And God would say, "Stay in your range. Enjoy what may be the pinnacle of a vocal achievement or something spiritual. But if you stay in your range, you're actually remaining in the same key. If you strive beyond what you're equipped to do, you're going to be out of key. You're going to sound like a squeaker and a screecher, and you're going to be causing problems. And I just found that to be for me. Though I could have reached his range, I actually enjoyed listening to him while I stayed in a lower range. And so even right now in our spiritual life, in where we are at as a church together right now, Appreciate the very unique differences that we have, but don't undermine at all what God is doing in your life and how he is using you. Don't undermine it. You know, I would say that 50% of the songs, I was nodding my head and tapping my foot and lifting my hands, singing quietly in my heart. I can totally sing. I just felt this is what I needed to do and wanted to do. And so even as we leave today's service with a special song, God is singing a special song over you. That's with certainty, he tells us, because there's a march that we're on right now. There's an enemy that's advancing. We want to take our pauses. We want to see the procession of divine encouragement that comes to us as we wait reverently upon the Lord. No matter what the indifference is out there, the manifestations of pride that we see, it does not subvert the will of God nor the way of God. And that's what you need to know.